As we remain standing, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning. We praise that you are the God who turns our sorrow into joy. We pray, Father, that you would open this last chapter of Lamentations to us, that we might see Jesus in it, that we might be pointed to him, and that the sorrows that we carry might also be turned to joy this day. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. All laments, at some point, come to an end. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning, King David wrote. Some nights are certainly longer than others, as David well knew, but the point remains. Inevitably, lament ends. Crises are resolved, challenges subside, and life marches on. Doesn't mean we forget what happened and no longer carry its wounds. Only that eventually the page turns and a new era begins. And that is certainly the feel of Lamentations 5. It looks back at what the people of Jerusalem have suffered, but it does so with an eye toward what comes next. They long for a different future. What we find is they're not entirely sure these longings will be satisfied. The book ends, as one commentator noted, with a sense of closure without resolution. A sense that a new time has come and there is gladness for that, but this new chapter is not without its own worries. What will this new day look like? It's a fair question for a people that have lived through enormous suffering. I won't speak for all of you, but walking through this book of Lamentations this Lenten season has spoken pretty clearly to me of my own experiences over these last couple years. Attempting to process what's going on around me, trying to somehow chart a way forward for for my own life, for my family, for the church. To hearing a thousand voices daily going off saying, this is what you're supposed to do. No, 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 actually you're supposed to do this. Or the constant call of what many of us seem to want to fixate on, this is who we are to blame for it. My emotions have run the gamut from hopeful to somber to just kind of flat out done. And then you seemingly come to a new day, and what do you do now? Well, it's one of the lessons of the whole book of Lamentations. It reminds us that communal lament is a good and appropriate thing, it is right to come together. And acknowledge our losses and struggles and frustrations. Because no matter what you think about the last two years or hope for the next few years, we have all been through a time that has left an indelible mark on us. 
And so chapter 5, this last piece of Lamentations, it speaks to us. And it shows us that our reflection on the past helps us to gain perspective on what we truly long for. How do the people of Jerusalem gain this perspective? Well, they do so by reflecting on the causes and the results of their terrible plight. In many ways, this is not new for us. It is a constant theme in the book. What has caused all of this? Sin. We've said it every week. Multiple times. It's sin. The people sinned and rebelled against the Lord, and so the covenant curses that he said would come upon them have. But chapter 5 adds something new to the discussion. We look at verse 7. Our fathers sinned and are no more, and we bear their iniquities. Now, at first glance, this looks like blame shifting, which is so tempting to do when we're caught in sin, isn't it? We want to point the finger at anyone else. And so we read this as, it wasn't us, Lord. It was our fathers. It was the previous generations that sinned against you, and now we're dealing with all their stuff. Everything we're going through, it's all their fault. We shift the blame because we want to feel righteous. No one wants to be the guy to stand up and be like, this was all my fault. My sin did it all. I was wrong, will you forgive me? No one likes saying that, do they? It's almost unnatural for us to hear those words. Do you forgive me? Because we rarely say them. It's not an easy thing to do. But what's interesting here is that if we keep reading, it turns out the people aren't shifting the blame at all. They're not pointing the finger alone. They are definitely pointing the finger. But they're not doing that alone. They're pointing the finger and the thumb. They're including themselves. Verse 16. Woe to us, for we have sinned. That's a good and fine translation, but a more direct one would be something like, would that we had never sinned. Either way, it's an acknowledgement that they and their fathers, the previous generations, all of them have sinned. It's the perspective gained after this time of trial, of coming to the end of your rope, and instead of running from the obvious conclusion, acknowledging the part that you have had to play. The fall of Jerusalem happened because all of the people have rejected the Lord. Now, on one hand, this moment is an acknowledgement that while we do not bear the judgment for someone else's sin, we can certainly bear its effects. We could think of the abuse victim who tragically bears the effect of an abuser's sin. It wasn't the abused that has sinned, it, they were sinned against. But they carry the effects of it. It's part of what the people are saying here. The generations that came before them sinned against the Lord and now they are feeling the effect of that. 
And one of those effects is that it teaches the next generation to sing. Granted, if we're honest, we don't need that much teaching in how to sin, but this is part of how sin becomes generational. A child sees people sinning, often their family, and often they don't see it dealt with, and so we assume that it's what people do. That it's just the normal way to act. We see it, it gets ingrained in us, we act upon it. It's like the old saying, if you ever want to know your own sin, look at your children. They're like little sin reflectors. Whatever your sins are, they're going to just beam them right back at you. That's the tone of this passage. Our fathers sinned, and so we have learned lives of sinfulness and rebellion like theirs. We have not learned how to live righteously, how to be faithful. We bear the marks of their sin and the judgment of our own, just as they bear the judgment of their own sins, but the marks of the generation that preceded them. And on and on and on it goes. The result of this generational sin is shown to us in verses 2 through 5. Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our homes to foreigners. We have become orphans and our mothers like widows. Let's stop there for one second. All of this language is about the loss of familial relationships. The people who were called to be God's people, his sons and daughters. That is who they are, who they were called to be. And as sons and daughters, they received an inheritance from the Lord. In the case of Israel, it's the land itself. That land flowing with milk and honey, that land of peace and of rest. And now due to the generational sin of the people, they've lost it. Because they've lost the father. That's the tragedy here. The land is one thing. The material possessions, all of that, that, that's one thing. But that pales in comparison to the loss of the father himself. The most tragic image in scripture of this time period comes from Ezekiel where he describes seeing the presence of the Lord leave the temple and leave the land. That is the true loss. If we keep reading in verse 4, we find the basic necessities of life. Water for drinking and wood for heating and cooking. These things that the Lord had freely given them, now they are costly. The enemies of the people pursue them relentlessly. There is no peace or rest, only weariness. You ever felt that before? Weariness? That tiredness in your very soul? A longing for peace and rest and finding none of it? It's hard for me to think of something worse. And so the people want wonder aloud. Why do you forget us forever? Why do you forsake us for so many days? Because it can feel that way, can't it? 
Like the Lord has forgotten his people. Like he has become so tired of us that he's just washed his hands of us. Go and have it your way. Live however you want. See what happens. Off you go. It seems like he doesn't see us, doesn't it? Have you ever had that moment where you're so tired and so weary you wonder if the Lord actually sees what you're going through? Or whether he's completely blind to all of your suffering? Where the people are. And I wonder if for them at any point the story of Hagar came to mind. Hagar, the servant of Sarah, the wife of Abraham. See, Sarah was afraid that the Lord would not give her a child with Abraham, though he had promised to do so. And so she told Abraham to go and have a child with Hagar. Abraham gets Hagar pregnant. Sarah grows jealous and chases her off. And so Hagar now finds herself in the desert with no food, no water, no hope. Fleeing from the one place that had provided protection, she is now utterly alone. And into that suffering, the Lord speaks to her. He promises not just his protection, but a future for the child she carries. And then Hagar says this to the Lord, You are the God who sees me. Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Who sees me. In times of trial and tragedy, it can seem as if the Lord does not see us at all. But he is the God who sees you. Whether it's COVID, or inflation, or joblessness, or illness, or fear at all, it may seem like we are left entirely to our own. But if you are in Christ, you follow the God who sees you, who knows you. That is what the people of Jerusalem are growing to understand. They see that the generational sin of the people has caused all of this, and so they rightly ask hard questions. But then they start getting the perspective they've needed. And the truth is, sometimes that perspective only comes when we're at the end. When we're in chapter 5, so to speak. When we have no rope left. That's where these people are. And I know, that, I know that's where some of us are, too. But look at how the chapter starts. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Look and see. The temptation is present in their hearts to assume that they have been forgotten. But like Hagar, they are seen. The temptation is to assume God doesn't see us, but that temptation is countered when we cry out to the Lord to look and see. Because the cry itself assumes something, doesn't it? It assumes that he can, 
that he can see you, that he can do something. Why else would you call out to God? If you didn't believe that he could do anything or that he cared enough to do anything, why would you bother calling out to him? It would be a waste of time. But they call out. And so this tension lives within the people. They worry that they are unseen and forgotten, and yet they still cry out. It is exactly the response that they should have in this moment. Because whenever we go through difficulty, we face this temptation, don't we? We face the temptation to ask, what if? What if the Lord doesn't do anything? What if he's actually not there at all? Then look at how the book ends. It's just a tad unsatisfying, isn't it? Verse 22. Unless you have utterly rejected us, and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Not exactly the note of positivity we were looking for, is it? Right before this, they're crying out to the Lord to restore him. To restore them to himself. And yet, what if pops into their minds? Friends, every time we ask what if, we need to take that what if and turn it right around. Or as my brother is fond of saying, we need to doubt our doubts. Why do we ask what if as if these questions have such a powerful hold on us? Why do we ask, what if God isn't there, as if that's the best question we could ever come up with? What if we ask, what if God is actually who he says he is? What if God is true to his promises? What if God actually did send his son to die for me? What if by his grace, I have truly been redeemed and my sin atoned for? And what if that all remains true, no matter what is going on in my life? What if we ask better what-if questions? What if whenever we experience times of doubt or prolonged suffering and questioning, we believed all the more in the promise that we read in chapter 3 that rings out like a bell throughout this entire book, that the Lord will not cast off forever? But though he will cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. What if God actually did love you that much? That sounds like a much better what if question to me. That seems like a way more fruitful question. Look and see, they call out. Look and see, Lord. Look out. At us, look and see to remember. Well, that seems kind of weird. <laughs> Why remember? Do they think that the Lord has forgotten? That he needs a reminder from the people? I mean, we act that way sometimes. But that's not actually the case, because they have a totally different understanding of remembrance than we do. You see, in the biblical understanding, remembrance is not simply just calling something to mind. It's rather, as Tremper Longman points out, implicit in the very concept of remembrance in Scripture is the hope that God won't simply see the suffering, but will act. Biblical remembrance is not just thinking about something, 
but thinking for the purpose of acting upon it. It's why we read in the account of the Exodus that the Lord heard the cries of his people and remembered his covenant. He didn't forget it for a time. It's that he acted upon his promise to deliver the people. It is the implication for the Christian today as we come forward to receive the sacrament, as we do this in remembrance of him, that remembrance is not simply recalling the cross to mind. It's more than that. It is remembrance with the intention of acting upon it, of receiving the benefits of his once and for all sacrifice on the cross, receiving the grace he extends to us, and by implication, acknowledging that we believe in him and what he has done for us. That's way more than just like, oh yeah, that happened. By the way, it's why faith and baptism are necessary to receive from the Lord's table. Implicit in the cry to the Lord to look and see and remember is the belief that he can act to help people. It is a faith-filled cry. Though the people have questions, though they are suffering, though parts of them wonder if all is lost, somewhere beneath all of that, faith remains. Even faith the size of a mustard seed. Underneath all their questions is still this glimmer of hope that says, no, the Lord can act. The Lord will act. He is our God and we are his people and so he will not cast off forever. We reflect on times of suffering and we lament them. We do so so that we can gain the healing and perspective we need to turn to our Lord and call out to him to act, to see us and remember us in the sure hope that he will act on our behalf just as he already has and will again. As I mentioned, this book ends on a less than satisfying note. <laughs> we wish it would end with that Verse 21 of the calling out to God. But it doesn't. It ends with a longing for more, with unsettledness. This is actually where the, the perspective of time is so much more helpful for us. Because we don't read this book as people who have just seen our city destroyed and wondering if God could do anything to overthrow the powers that torment us. Because we live in a time where the Lord has acted. The people of Jerusalem could only long for a Savior. It's where their hearts are longing towards. Friends, we've seen him come. The Lord has indeed heard the cries of his people and he has acted. And so in Jesus, all that was lost is found again. The people's inheritance had been lost and turned over to the Gentiles. Peter tells us that in Jesus, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, that is undefiled and unfading, kept for us in heaven where no one can take it away. Paul tells us that if we are in Christ, we are sons of God and co-heirs of the kingdom of Jesus. It's all because of that in Christ, what was lost is found again. The lost relationship with our Father is recovered. And so the people called out to be remembered. Sometimes we need to remember ourselves, don't we? 
This is done. It's finished. In verse 21 we read, Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. It's a beautiful prayer. It's a prayer of people who seem to finally be getting it. They see that what they need is the Lord. They didn't say restore all our stuff to us. They said restore us to yourself. You know, no matter what you think about these last two years, no matter what you think about lockdowns and restrictions and government decisions and vaccines and masks, no matter if you think now is the time to eliminate all restrictions or that we're still in the thick of it or that it all should have been over a year ago. No matter what you think, this is what I hope for. That our prayer would be this verse 21. No matter what you think of the last two years, we would pray that the Lord would renew our days, that he would restore us to him. Not by bringing back all we believe we've lost, because all of that can be taken away again, but that he would restore the years the locusts have eaten by restoring us to himself. I have heard and seen in the cries of friends and relatives and more people than I can remember at this point a longing for peace and for hope, for some sort of foundation that is unchanging. It seems to be the one constant of the last two years. Is that where your heart is? Do you reflect back on this season with a longing for something more, for something better? Verse 19. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. That is the God of the Bible. That is Jesus. He is the one who reigns. As Hebrews 13 tells us, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Restore us to yourself, O Lord. In our lament, in our reflection, in our suffering, in our joy, restore us to yourself. Call out to the one who does not change, to the one thing that can't be taken away from you. And it's so much better than the things we cling to. Call out to the one who by his grace offers redemption and restoration and the recovery of all that was lost. Because in Jesus, in Jesus alone, he offers you nothing less than God himself. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.